Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is an extraordinary man with an extraordinary vision. He points out that our interactions with inanimate objects, our cars and our homes, the devices that we wear, the devices that we use, have redefined how we think of health and how we think of health care. So much so that the interaction between doctor and patient will change beyond all recognition in the years ahead. I was fascinated by this conversation from somebody who makes a compelling case for an exciting and optimistic view of medicine in the years ahead. My guest today is Christophe Choquet. You're very welcome to the show, Christophe. I'm particularly keen to speak with you today because many of the ideas that you talk about online and on your website are radical. They're a radical change in the way that we think about health and healthcare. Is that a fair summary of the position? Well, I think it's kind of funny to uh, to hear you say radical, because in many ways, to me, it isn't radical at all. But the fact that very often it is perceived within the healthcare industry uh, as being radical kind of is um, my main message indeed. Because there's, there, there is so much happening in this world. And sometimes we've, we've, we've been left behind in, in healthcare and we didn't pay attention too much. We were noticing how things were changing. We're so much focused internally that we uh, often missed out on everything else that was, uh, was happening. So to me, the change is perhaps not that radical, although it might come across as such in, uh, in, the, in the industry itself, yeah. I agree that much of our experience of life has changed. If you now want to travel, you no longer go to a travel agent, you book it online. If you want to read a book, you find it online. If you want to eat at a particular restaurant, you book it online. How do you think that this will change our attitude to healthcare, number one? And why do you say that Mercedes is the most healthful company that you know of? Well, I, I'd like to pick up and, 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 and uh, piggyback on something you said earlier. I think from a healthcare point of view, the reason why we, why we are a little bit behind is because very often... We were so much focused on the process and, and everything that came out, like a digital innovation, AI, anything, we always were looking internally and looking at how we can actually adapt processes. And I think one of the best examples is if we, if we saw Uber arriving or Amazon growing. I mean, there were so many talks about um, should healthcare be Uberized or should um, healthcare be tenderized? And we were always thinking, it, thinking uh, or looking at it from a very process point of view. The thing is that all, the, all of these companies, it's less about the process that it actually changes, but it's a lot more about how it changes people's expectations. So when you're talking about making the, the, the healthcare world more Amazonized, if that is a word, it's not about copy-pasting like a quick sales model, an online convenience tool, whatever. It's more about how did Amazon change the expectations of patients, right? And how can we adapt ourselves so that we meet those expectations? So it's not about the model of Amazon, because that is wonderful, etc. But maybe it's not applicable to healthcare. It's more about how did Amazon change overall expectations of people? Because those expectations will apply also to healthcare. It's very funny if, if, if I saw all these discussions arising in the past years about Uberizing things in healthcare, etc. I don't think that is the way that we need to look at it. It's, it needs to look at how did people change their expectations? because of the fact that Uber is around, right? And so to your other point regarding uh, Mercedes-Benz, I think 
Healthy Jazz in my book explains how people are more than ever occupied with their health. It's, it has become one of the main key drivers. And if you want as a company still speak to your customers, you need to go beyond delivering a good experience. It, it's no longer enough to have a good experience. Like for example, Mercedes-Benz, I mean, it's a wonderful car to drive in. The, the experience that you have when you drive in it, it's great. I mean, they were working on it for years. The thing is, it's hard to differentiate yourself. Even for a Mercedes-Benz, compared to other cars, Jaguar, whatever, it's hard to differentiate yourself. So they are looking for ways to, to differentiate and add value to things that actually customers really want. And so when they looked into it about 10 years ago, they realized that, that health is, is one of the most important things for people. I mean, we're, we're, we're slowly going to the end of the year. What will be the first thing we say on New Year's Day to our family and friends? Have a healthy and happy new year, right? And this is the most important thing for our, our, in, our, in our lives. And so what Mercedes has been trying to do, and they had a medical director on board since about, I, I believe, eight to 10 years now. And they really believe that beyond the good experience, they want to change people while driving the car. They want to transform people. So their vision is if you spend three hours driving in a car, you shouldn't be exhausted by just the driving of it, but you actually should feel refreshed or healthier because of it. So they really changed their, their entire interior of the car in the light of, of, of making people healthier. So the sensors in there, the ambient the lightning can, uh, can change in, in response to how you are stressed out, how, you, how the traffic is going, because they could, I mean, the computer and the AI could all see that. Whether you'll be in time for your meeting, whether you slept well, whether, you, whether you're, you're, you're stressed out whatsoever. But also the temperature can change. If you're sitting too long in the chair, it could, the chair could, uh, could move, give you a massage, all those kind of things. Small things, all interchangeable, all interoperable with, uh, with, you, with the devices that we are wearing. But with the vision to make people healthier while being in a car. After all, I mean, the car is probably like what the third place we spent most time in. So it was a very smart move. And meanwhile, I think like eight or nine different car manufacturers are following the steps of Mercedes-Benz to become a company that actually uh, is focused on health. It's not a very stupid idea. If you think about it, within a couple of years, we'll, we'll be having self-driving cars. So what will you be doing in a car? You might as well work on your health and well-being, right? So. That's why I believe that Mercedes is one of the companies that is really making strides and the difference in uh, managing one's health and, and healthcare in general. So what you're saying, if I've understood you, is that the things that we interact with, even our cars, are changing the way that we think about health and healthcare. It, health isn't something that you do outside of those times when you're traveling or entertaining yourself or anything else. Health is something that you think about all the time. Is that a fair summary? That's a total fair summary. We used to think about health when we were sick. Because we we're sick, we need to now be um, healthy again. I think that I'm, I'm 100% sure that we are uh, managing our health in different ways today to be even healthier. And, and perhaps as healthy as possible, which can make us happy. Now, uh, maybe a good example would be, imagine a 34-year-old woman just randomly picking someone. If she wants to be healthy or she knows what to do. If she wants to be happy for a 34-year-old who perhaps had just had her second child or her first child, who's thriving in her career, who still is in contact with her friends from uni, who wants to go running, who wants to be a good partner, who wants to see the, fa the, the, the family-in-law uh, still perform well at work because she just had been promoted. 
uh, and still be a good mom. So to do all of these things, being a mom, being a partner, being a, an employee, being a boss, being a friend, being a sportswoman, she needs energy to, to be able to, to cope with all that. If she doesn't have the energy, she, she, she can't do all of this, she might be unhappy. So to have that energy, she will pay attention to her health. She will eat more healthily, make sure that she sleeps enough and then change the way that she goes about her pauses or her mental health in general. And so people today are more aware that they can impact their health more than ever before. I mean, there's tools, but there's also more knowledge. And so, yes, I, I totally believe that people throughout their entire day actually take a zillion different decisions that makes them or makes them not healthy or happy. And people start realizing that. And when they have these small impacts on all these different types of decisions, that's when they're really making a change for themselves. And they are looking for ways more and more to impact those small decisions, what to eat, when to go to bed, how much sleep do I need? What if I let go of uh, drinking a glass of wine two hours before I go to bed? What if I don't drink coffee in the afternoon? What if I eat less, less fat, etc.? Um, what if I move a bit during the day? How much does that alter my sleep? I mean, more and more people starting to adapt their lifestyle because of all the information and tools that we have at disposal and also by the good examples that we see. So indeed, and I, I think one of the, the striking thing is we always talk about healthcare. I mean, we opened the podcast by using the word healthcare. I try to avoid that word as much as possible. Um, I mean, it, it, it still indicates something, right? What I don't like about healthcare and why I have stopped using it in the past six years as much as possible is because to me, healthcare is too much an on and off switch. I mean, you're either in the system or you're out of the system. And I think when it comes to our health and the care that we have for our health, it's not about the system which is on and off. I think it's always on. And that's why on the, on the cover of my book, it's also more like a volume button that actually allows you to see I go from sick to healthy, from healthy to happy. And, and you kind of decide for yourself how far you go and how, how much you put into it. But it's not something that you put on or put off. I mean, our health enthusiasm, as I call it, is always on. And with different people, it might be more or less, but it's always on. And it will be more and more in our lives. 100% sure of, yeah. How do you square that with the epidemiological data that more and more of us are either overweight or obese, we're drinking far too much, we're more likely to die in car accidents, etc.? How do you square the notion that whilst we are more healthful, we're more conscious of our health, on the one hand, on the other hand, the data suggests that we are increasingly at risk of the impact of our overconsumption and our sedentary lifestyle. Yeah, I think you point out a very important thing, and that is the, the state is we're in right now. And I think and the way that I look at it, it's certainly something that we inherited from the, the recent past. Ever since the 70s, basically, we've been focused on junk food and eating bad food. And I think what happened in the past 10 to 20 years is that we, we have been forced in a way more slightly evolved into eating more processed foods, which is a lot more unhealthy. We have not been moving enough because we have a lot of sedentary jobs. And I think that is kind of showing off right now. And this is it's becoming clear that this is happening. So I'm not trying to say that we are there yet or that because um, people are more aware that everything is so easily changeable. I think in that the behavioral design we're always talking about when uh, health solutions is becoming more and more important. But I do think that there is a mind shift going on. Um, it's not visible yet in the kilos, but it is visible, though, in the amount of alcohol that is consumed. 
if you look at from a global point of view, it is still growing. But that's mainly because of, of new countries like China, for example, who are um, suddenly in a situation where they can actually consume it more easily. And they're in the beginning of their welfare state, let's say. Well, if we look at it in Western European countries, for example, there we see the, the alcohol have been re- reduced quite a lot in the past couple of years. It's not that it is across the world yet the case, but certainly in Western countries, that is the case. Also, um, when we look at junk food, junk food has been decreased in the, the amount of consumption that we, that, that we can see. But it's everywhere. And it's a slow change because we're very addicted to fat and sugar, of course. But what I try to focus on, see, in a way, Healthusiasm is, an, is sometimes what I call an, an, it's an activism book. Um, so I really try to be an activism or put it forward as let's change the world. But instead of looking at all the bad things and saying like this still 60% of people being obese, that is totally true. What I try to bring is I bring, I try to bring instead of a negative story, a very positive story and say like, look, this is already changing. There's a lot of positives going on and we can do even more because that is another fact. Besides the fact that activism is very often related to a, a negative atmosphere and, and, and pointing out the bad things that are still out there, I try to point out the good things. But I also try to bring this some sense of positivism within healthcare as well, because in my opinion, very often what we've seen is that the overall feeling with change is uh, certainly in healthcare is, is one of negativity in a sense that we cannot do this. It is not possible. And certainly if you work with pharmaceutical companies, which I do a lot, the, the feelings are, are, are mostly the, in such that they um, believe that they're not allowed to do stuff because of regulatory reasons, etc., or that people would not want it. And I, I tend to bring the other side of the study and look like this is already changing. Have a, have a look at that. So healthygism is, is actually a wonderful word. I actually came across it uh, very um, accidentally, but it, it actually describes the positive activism and the focus on the positivity and all the good change that is already happening very well. And that's what I try to do with, with companies is like opening their eyes and saying like, look, we can do a lot of things here. It's not perfect yet, but we can do a lot of things. So let's start doing it. I can see that certainly in just walking around the street, there are suburbs where people are very conscious of what they eat and how much exercise they take and so on. But there are many other areas where that is simply not happening. And that inequity is a huge part of our experience of health and healthcare in 2020. How do you think that that will change in the coming years? I think you're right in saying that there's still a social discrepancy between the ones that can afford it or have the education or the, the environment to, to actually do it and the ones that probably have not. It's, it's one of the new luxuries right now, being healthy and trying to be able to focus on, on health. It's one of them. It's probably the question I get the most because I, when I speak on stages and people come to me afterwards, half of the time they're saying, "Yeah, but you may be right that 50% of people are more focused on their health than ever before, but there's still 50 people that don't, and there's a lot of reasons, social determinants, for example, that that make that the other 50% is not yet there." And the first answer that I give then is. Uh, I, I try to explain to them that maybe we don't see it as much, but also they are uh, changing. So I, I, I've done research um, throughout the years with, um, with a company I, I used to work for. And one of the questions I always put in is, have you bought certain products in the past five years that actually impact your health? And 95% of people actually said that, yes, 
I did buy more products that impact my health. And I think it's true that it is still a luxury thing. Very often services or solutions today is still a luxury, but so were smartphones one day. And so it is being spread out across, I'm pretty sure. And what I, and what I also try to um, convince companies about is saying like, look, if you want to spread things to a larger mass, it's needs, it needs to be attractive enough, first of all. And second of all, it needs to have traction with the first 50%. Because if you have traction with the first 50%, then it will slowly spread out because the costs become lower and because it becomes more attractive, because it becomes, it becomes a normality in society. So I think even if today we cannot get everybody again with us, I think it's important to start with the first 5%, go to the 50%, because without that 50%, you can never get to 100. It's a pathway we need to go through from a business point of view, from a financial point of view, from a social point of view. It is a mandatory step. You cannot just put something onto the market or change um, uh, habits all at once. I mean, there's no one-fits-all solution and it, nothing works for everyone. But I be- I'm totally believe that this is a trend that will grow. And it's a matter to us of, or, or, or of us to, to actually make sure that we get those 5, 10, 50% on board before we can get to the, to, to the rest, actually. I think that is a very important thing to, uh, to keep in mind. Certainly, if I work with uh, governmental bodies, this is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, but this is not social yet. Not, not everybody is ready for it. And so, yeah, maybe. But how can you get to 100 is by getting the 5% first, right? So, and that is something that we need to keep in mind. It's again that positivity, right? It's it's like focusing on the good stuff instead of the people that you can't reach yet. I think that is the one of the most important things that I uh, I try to get a conveyor to other people. Yeah. You're right, Christophe. And there's a lot of science to back those ideas. Early adopters lead to increasing adoption of a particular innovation, and ultimately it becomes the norm. You've talked about the car as a place that you're seeing a lot of innovation in terms of health. Where else are there signs of change? In what other industries do you see changes that are making us much more proactive in terms of our attitudes to health? Well, I think the the industry that is probably the most innovative there, I believe, is uh, the travel industry. To me, the travel industry has always been one of the most innovative industries ever. It, it doesn't really come across that. We, we don't really think about it that way. But like, you know, if, if you want to create value as a company, there is a shift that goes from product to service, from service to experience. And then now we're in the midst of going from experience to transformations. To transformations is exactly the experience that makes people healthier and, and happier, which Mercedes-Benz is doing. Now, if you look at the um, travel industry, I think they were the, the ones that first shifted from a product to a service. Like already in the 50s, before that travel was merely, I would say, you need to get out of your house and you rent another house in another place. But from the 50s, 60s on, they, there became more services and the all-in-one formula where you, where you go and you don't have to make your own food and you're served like a king, that already rise in the, in the, in the 60s. Um, in the 90s, we saw experience becoming more important in, in the travel industry. So you don't just go on holiday just to spend the entire day next to the pool being served a wonderful margarita. People were tired of it. And, and what you saw then from the 90s onward is that horseback riding 
became interesting. And we want to go to Iceland and we want to do stuff that maybe has nothing to do with just leisure time and sitting next to a pool, but we really wanted to experience things. And that was already in the 90s. There were not a lot of businesses in the 90s focused on experiences, but the travel industry was. And we see the same thing again with what I call then customer transformations, you know, the, those experiences that make people um, feel better about themselves. Because since about five to 10 years, there's a shift going on where people not just want to have an experience, they want to have an experience that actually changes themselves. They want to climb the Kilimanjaro where they feel uh, small and, and where they really want to feel a different person when they climb down the mountain again. Or they want to meet with the gorillas to feel humbled by nature. And, and, or, or they just want to go out and have an, an, a wellness vacation and, and really zoom out of the entire world. So but besides, about 17% of today's travel industry, 17, goes to wellness trips. So that's about one-fifth almost that, um, that actually goes to wellness trips. So the, the travel industry, for, for, to me, is one of the, the, the industries that is really changing in the light of this health enthusiasm. You can also see this in, in, um, in hotel chains, for example. I travel a lot for speeches to, to go on stage, and I never will, will, would pick a, a hotel where I cannot work out or where there's not an, an, a sauna. And those are the basic stuff. But more and more, what you see is that if you, if you go on holiday, there's a holistic um, health coach that can actually talk to you, or you, you can have certain massages, or there's, there's a lot of health and well-being being offered in, the, in, in, in more and more hotels, actually, just basic business hotels even. Because it's, let's face it, I mean, if, if I'm traveling, it's more easy to, um, or it's easier to work out than when I'm at home and I have to take care of the kid and, and do some, some stuff in the house. While I'm traveling, I'm, I'm on my own. I can do whatever I want. So I have the time to work out and go to a sauna more easily. That's, that's why, it, to me, it's also important. And you see that very much in the hotel and the travel industry, yeah, the enthusiasm. How do you think that going to the doctor will change in the years ahead? You're right. Everything else has changed. Going on holidays changed. Going out for dinner has changed. How do you think going to the doctor will change? Well, that's a very good question. And I think it's... Um... It's, it's not clear yet, I guess. But what are we certain about is that, well, we've seen telehealth arising, right? But I think that is, I, I, I'm, I'm already sick about hearing about telehealth now because it's so obvious and it's been around for 20 years. It's too sad that we that we only started in healthcare doing this because the entire world is moving into a virtual 3D kind of world with uh, Fortnite where they launch products and Zipetos and, and uh, Animal Crossing whatsoever. And maybe those are not the right setting for healthcare. We're not there yet. But at the same time, I did see, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with Minecraft. So Minecraft is a um, virtual world where kids can actually build a world. And what you see is that there is now an, an, a world which is called Bump Galaxy. It's a designed world. And actually, psychologists and patients and yoga therapists they all meet there somewhere in that virtual world to talk about stuff. And so it's a totally decentralized thing where you can, as a patient, talk to a um, psychologist from Japan or um, talk with um, a yogi from, uh, from India and, and learn some things. So there's this decentralized thing that in the virtual world that will be happening and, and be even be way beyond telehealth. What I do think is that the, the biggest change for physicians in general, and certainly for the general practitioner, is there's a lot of AI coming our way. Like when I say a lot of, I work a lot with startups. I mean like really a lot of things. 
and and they exist. I mean, they're not widely distributed yet, and they're working on the the, the learning of the the AI. But there's a lot of diagnosis, reminder, um, management tools that are out there, and so this will change the way that physicians do their work because we we used to complain about yeah, a patient read this and that online on Google and they're totally confused. So what do we need to do about it? Well, now your patient will come in and, and say like, look, I've been monitoring my um, heartbeat for the past six months and my AI says this and that, probably mentioning an, an, a disease that a general practitioner might not really know about, having to refer immediately. But maybe that same patient might say, look, and I have another tool that says the opposite. So how do I need to go about this? I mean, there, there, so, there will be so many diagnosis tools and reminder tools that patients will be really informed. I mean, not just reading stuff online, but like really based on their own biomarkers and guided by the, the, the decisions, the decision tools that AI will, will, will become. They will become not only informed, but activated and saying like, do you need to do this? Or how do I need to go about this? Because this is the diagnosis. There's no, there's no mistaking there. So I think one of the biggest changes will certainly be that physicians will no longer be being the one that are that are, are owning the patients. Because I had a huge discussion with somebody with, with a physician about that, who will be owning the patients. I think that is kind of like right now still the um, mentality of physicians is like it's my patients. I'm the one responsible. I, I, I need to be the one that is taking the decisions and calling the shots. Well, that will no longer no longer be the case at all, actually, because those AI tools will be so much present that a physician will need to think about, yeah, how, how, how do I help my patient? So it, it, it will no longer be just a matter of putting in the diagnose. It will be more about guiding. And I think that is a radical shift for physicians. And I, think, I don't think that physicians are quite ready for that yet, to really be able to know about all these tools, to know how to interpret it, all these data, they're not trained for that. And to deal with patients who are actually, well, let's face it, maybe perhaps more informed about themselves than the, than, than the physician will be. So the role of the physician will totally, totally change into guiding, being really the guides and throughout all these um, tools, etc. It sounds from what you're saying, Christoph, that medical school will be quite a different experience, that doctors will have to learn to deal with patients who come in with a lot more information. It's not just information that you glean from the examination or from the test. There'll be so much more to take into account. So it sounds like the whole of the medical learning experience, the medical school experience will change in the years ahead. The one thing that concerns me in the world that you're describing is that when you and I are sick, we actually need another human being in order to make us feel better. A computer can't touch us, for example, or can they? What other ways will the experience change? Well, first of all, they totally can or they will uh, in the future. I mean, I don't, I don't doubt about that. But I think there is something about human interaction that will, for the next decade or maybe two, will still be super important. And I think when I talk about how physicians need to adapt to guide people, it will be indeed a switch towards a more human approach. So instead of having to type things in, instead of having to think too much on, on what could be potential diagnosis or what the, per, the perfect um, dosage, dosages are, all those things will be taken care of more easily than before, which means like the human interaction will have a lot more attention in, in the entire discussion or in the entire visit. And I think with, with that, not only comes the fact that the physicians will have to learn to be 
more human because let's face it, not every physician perhaps is as charismatic or as open or as, as social as, as, as another. But I think that this is one of the things that they will learn. But what, what I also see happening, and I'm already working with, with, with quite some medical centers on, on that, is that the, the entire interior of medical centers will change. In a sense that because human interaction will become more important, I think there will be a lot more place or necessity or need for what I call transformative spaces. See, right now what you have, and if you have a clinic or a medical center, it's a, a gathering of different physicians together and it, it's comfortable. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's, cl it's clinical. You, you feel like you're entering a clinic. But if the entire relationship with your physician will go into a more human factor, I think also the environment needs to become more recognizable, soft, radiating tranquility, positivity. And so what I try to do now with medical centers is already start shifting their entire interiors and going from what I call them physical places into transformative spaces, which by which I mean that if you are in an environment, it needs or it needs to already transform you. So we talked about transformations in the way that Mercedes Benz is transforming people by how how the time they spent in the car. But I think the, the actual same thing should be happening in the in the in the physical spaces of uh, medical centers and medical clinics, etc. Um, and, and in a sense that when people enter there, I mean, right now, if you enter a clinic, you already feel sick, right? I mean, it's, it's so clinical. It's, it's a very typical environment. And it's not always very welcoming. It's not, and, 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 there, and then there's a, a, a physician sitting behind his computer. And so all of these things is very clinical. There's no emotion attached. And I think we, we need to bring that human aspect, that, he, that emotional factor back into the, to, to the buildings as well. And, and to making sure that when people arrive there, that's, well, that they already feel good. And I think what I saw on your website recently was um, about how 30 minutes waiting is unacceptable in the waiting room. And I think with, with every medical center I talk, um, they all want to achieve that. And the, the standard response I give is like, look, making sure that there's no waiting time is a process thing. And it's very, very difficult to achieve that. I think you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. It's not about making sure that people don't have to wait anymore. The thing is more... How can you make sure that the time they are so-called waiting doesn't feel like waiting? And that changes everything. I mean, it's, it's, people don't mind to wait a little bit, but if it's in an environment, I mean, if it, with, with a bad seed and, and there's no ambient, I mean, natural ambient light and there's no plants and you can't even re read a, a magazine that is not older than six months, that's a dreadful experience. The question is, how can you change the experience of waiting that it doesn't feel like waiting anymore? We all take planes. We spent two hours waiting for a plane. But to me, it is probably one of the most or the best experiences sometimes in my entire week. Because there, if I go to a lounge and if I fly first class, I have the luxury to go to go, go into a lounge. This is wonderful. I mean, this is the like two hours. I can either work very easily. There's no one disturbing me. Or I can just sit down and read a magazine. I mean, how many times in life do we have that? It, there's nothing wrong with waiting. It's just about... How can we change the waiting experience that it doesn't feel like we are waiting, but that we're actually spending a good time and that we feel better just by being there? And I think that is one of the one of the main things that comes with the change that physicians and healthcare centers need to you know, will need to go through in the in, in the next decade. Yeah, that is also a very reassuring picture that you paint. That it's not just about computers and AI. It's about enhancing the entire experience of going to the doctor, including the idea that if you have to wait, 
And you're right, it isn't always possible to avoid a wait of more than half an hour in a doctor's clinic. If you have to wait, then that experience enhances the visit to the doctor, not detracts from it. Christophe Choquet, it's been an absolute honor speaking with you today. Not only are you a visionary, but you present a very optimistic view of the future based on the idea that the glass is half full. And we thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. It was nice talking to you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>